My name is Mike. I'll be sharing the Word of God with you. I want to say hello to everybody who may be joining us via video. Tonight, as the screen indicates, we're going to look at the treachery of Good Friday. We're going to look at mainly the events that led up to the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to do that, we're going to be in John chapter 13, looking at verses 18 through 30. If you'd like to turn there now, you can. Let me start by offering a definition of treachery. But I don't want to use words yet. I'd like to show you treachery in images. The date earlier this year, February 9th, 2022, the location was Hilldale Baptist Church in Clarksville, Tennessee. Let me set the scene for you. Linda Morrow, a 78-year-old churchgoer, arrives early for the prayer meeting. She enters into the sanctuary. She finds a seat in the back. She's by herself. She sits down and sets her purse next to her. Shortly thereafter, a couple ladies come in and they approach her. They greet her warmly, shake her hand. One of the ladies sits in front of Linda. The other one sits behind. And they make small talk for a few minutes. The woman in the front she asks Linda if she would pray for her, particularly pray for her mom, she says, who is sick with COVID. So Linda, being the faithful churchgoer that she is, says, of course, I would love to do that. So the woman in front gets down close to Linda. She crouches down, grabs Linda's hands, and kind of turns Linda just a little bit. And that woman the woman in front who's now crouching actually does the praying. But what's going on while she's praying, the woman in the back has her left hand on Linda's back, but with her other hand, she reaches into Linda's purse and pulls out her wallet. She empties the contents of credit cards and cash and returns the wallet to the purse. And the last slide shows these same women exiting a Sam's Club store just moments later, having run up the credit card of Linda and spent all her cash. Pastor of the church, Larry Robertson, said, keep your eye on your wallet, even in church, I guess, he said sadly. Now, lest you think that is an isolated incident, it's not. I went to YouTube to get those images because I heard about that video. It kind of made some news earlier this year. So I went to YouTube and I was going to get the video, you know, the still shots because I, I wanted to show it to you in images. And you know the wormhole that YouTube is. You go for one thing, you spend hours there looking at related videos. Well, right next to that video was another video, very similar. An unsuspecting woman is praying in church. The man in the back is scoping out the situation. He looks to see that her eyes are closed and he moves over and very slyly takes her purse and then makes for the door. The church building, the place where people come to pray, to offer their praises, to fellowship, a safe place is not immune to treachery. Let me give you a definition using words now. 
Dictionary definition, a violation of one's allegiance. Treachery means to commit treason. But given our sermon series here, this short one over uh, starting last weekend and concluding this Sunday, uh, looking at trust, treachery, and triumph, I like this definition. It's very simple. Treachery is a betrayal of trust. And for many of us, when we hear that word betrayal, there's a figure, a person that immediately leaps to mind, and that is Judas Iscariot. We're going to look at Judas Iscariot this evening and his infamous betrayal as chronicled in many ancient documents, namely Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to look at the John account, as I said, in chapter 13. So if you would, please stand. I'm going to read verses 18 through 30. If you're new to Living Water, we normally read from the ESV, and that's the case this evening. John 13 says this. I'm not speaking of all of you. This is Jesus speaking. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple leaned back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Thank you, you may have a seat. Allow me to give us all a, a very short biographical sketch of this Judas. If you ask the average person whether they attend church or they're well familiar with the Bible or not, typically what people know is Judas was a disciple of Christ and that he betrayed him with a kiss for 30 pieces of silver. But if we dig a little deeper, we might find out some interesting things that maybe we, we didn't realize. His first name, Judas, actually means praise which is like the irony of all ironies. Last name Iscariot, that denotes where he was from. He was from the town of Kiriath. He was the only one of the disciples who wasn't a Galilean. 
And as we read, he was the treasurer. So he was the one who held the money bag for the disciples. And as the previous chapter, chapter 12, shows us, he liked to dip into the money bag. He skimmed a little off the top for his own personal gain. And the text tells us Judas was a thief. When the disciples are listed in the New Testament, Judas is always last, and it comes with a title, a descriptor. It doesn't say Judas the treasurer, it says Judas the betrayer. And if you do a little study on Judas, you'll find a whole host of words that are tagged or attached to him that none of us want any of these words attached to us. Very unsavory words like counterfeit, crooked, deceitful, double-crossing, duplicitous, fraudulent, hypocritical, slippery, sneaky, traitorous, of course, treacherous, our word this evening, two-faced, unfaithful, underhanded, unreliable, untrustworthy, and lastly, just to round out the list, wicked. See, that's why you'll meet people today with the name John, James, Matthew. You might even run across a Bart. But you don't go into the bank and say, hey, I I would like to uh, do a transaction. And the teller says, well, hi, my name is Judas. Would you like to make a deposit? And perhaps we can become friends. Never happens. Never happens. As the saying goes, with friends like Judas, who needs enemies? And for many of us, we know how things ended for Judas. He couldn't even end his life well. He hung himself, and either the rope broke or the the branch broke, because Acts 1.18 tells us, with the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. That's the life of Judas Iscariot. But in our text, he's alive. He is alive. It's Thursday night, the Passover, and Judas is there reclining at the table. He's with Jesus, he's with the other 11 disciples, and he sits there with freshly cleaned feet, which is staggering if you think about it. That is because the Christ the Son of God, the Lord of glory, God incarnate, King of kings and Lord of lords, stooped to do what no one else wanted to do, the lowest of jobs. And he washed the feet of the one who he knew would betray him. Astounding. And that leads me to our first point tonight, and that is Jesus is aware of treachery. He's aware of all treachery especially this one here. He's fully aware of what's going on. Jesus is not a helpless victim of unsuspecting treachery. If we go back to verses 10 and 11, he says to the disciples, you are clean, but not all of you are clean. Very ominous. Followed by verse 18, the first verse we looked at. He says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus says to the group, I know you guys. 
I know you intimately. I know everything about you. I know your heart. I know how you're a doubter, Thomas. I know, Peter, how you're going to deny me three times. And I know who the betrayer is. At this point, they don't know, but Jesus does. And he says, this is so the scripture would be fulfilled. This is hearkening back to Psalm 41.9. I believe a reference to Ahithophel, who is another man who took his own life. So Jesus is fully aware of the treachery going on. And I think this is a good place to remind all of us about the omniscience of God. God knows it all. You're not hiding anything from him. You, you, you can't, you know, trick him. You, there, there's no secrets with the Lord. There's none. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He knows what you're thinking right now. I don't know what you're thinking. The person next to you doesn't know what you're thinking. Unless you've been married like 40, 50 years, then maybe they do. I don't know. But God knows. God knows. Proverbs 15:3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. That evil you're planning, he knows about it. That good, God-glorifying thing that you're planning, he knows about that as well. He knows it all. See, we think we're getting away with stuff, don't we? People say, it's a secret. It's a, shh, it's a secret. I'm going to take this secret to my grave. No one's going to know. Well, there's only one problem with that, and that is the word of God. It says that what's said in the dark is going to be brought out into the light. Things done behind closed doors will be proclaimed from the rooftops. Everything hidden will be exposed and brought out into plain sight. Again, we think we're hiding our dirty deeds. I'll give you evidence. Sin City, what's their motto? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. No, what happens in Vegas gets judged by God. He knows. And it's a healthy reminder for all of us. Point number two, Jesus is not only aware of treachery, he anticipates it. Verse 19, I'm telling you this now, now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Now consider the context in which Jesus says these words. This group is on the precipice of the most earth-shattering event that's ever going to take place. And Jesus is fully aware of that. He knows doubt is creeping in, confusion. There's confusion in our text here today, if you're following along, and fear. And so he knows all this is happening, that the group is sensing something big is about to go down. They can feel it. So Jesus knows this is a fragile group. And he just dropped a bomb on them. One of you is unclean. There's a rat in the kitchen. Maybe they're recalling in their mind what he said back in John chapter 6. Jesus said this. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. Whew. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Just look at the kind provision of our Lord here. 
He, he knows, the other, one of the other gospels says they're all going to fall away. He knows they're going to become unraveled. And he doesn't want them completely unraveled. He doesn't want them to be so shook that they're, they're, they're paralyzed. He's like, brace yourself for what's coming. Jesus is anticipating the treachery. So you ask, how, how is this possible? The answer is there in the text. End of verse 19, he gives us the answer. So that when, this, when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Now the he there at the very end of that is not in the original language. It's put in there in our English Bibles, but it's really not there in the Greek. It's not. And some translations indicate this. If we look at the New American Standard, same verse. From now on, I'm telling you before it happens, so that when it does happen, you may believe that I am he. And notice the he in italics. Not there in the Greek. Well, why is this significant? What Jesus is doing here is he's claiming the divine title, I am, for himself. He's saying, I know all these things because I'm God. I know this. The ego I me, the I am, hearkening back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. And in the Gospel of John, is just, this is just, it's filled with this, with this sort of I am statements, right? And my favorite by far is John chapter 8, because in that chapter, it happens twice. Let me, let me share these with you. Uh, verse 24 of John 8. Again, I'm going to read from the New American Standard here. Therefore, I said to you that, I, that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Some translations insert the he there in italics. Then a few verses later in verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Is that a claim of deity? Well, look at how the people responded. The very next verse, Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. Pharisees want to stone him to death. Jesus hid himself and left the temple grounds. The Pharisees knew exactly what he was saying. They got the message loud and clear. There was no mistake about it. He's aware of treachery and he anticipates it because he is God. Point number three. Jesus addresses treachery. Verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now, this verse, we got to pause here for a second because this verse seems really out of place, doesn't it? Like if you're following the, 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 the line here the, of reasoning, the narrative, you're like, verse 20 seems like it just got inserted in there. What's going on? Well, there's two ways to understand that verse. One pertains to the past. The other would be the future. I'll give you both of them. Some people believe that when Judas is revealed as a traitor, there's going to be people who in the past came to, to faith in Christ at the preaching of Judas. Judas was a preacher. And so what, what Jesus doesn't want is, is he doesn't want people to reach a wrong conclusion that somehow because they came to faith in Christ through preaching of a, of a traitor, that that somehow invalidates that person's conversion. Jesus says, no, because whoever receives the one I send receives me. And Jesus did send Judas. Now, 
I'm not in love with that understanding. I prefer the second one. Again, I think Jesus is all about the future. He knows what's going to happen. He's preparing them. Here's what I think uh, he's getting at when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. That, to me, is commissioning language. I think what he's getting at is, listen, things are about to get crazy. And when they do, I want you to know we don't deviate from the plan. The mission has not changed. You are still called to go out there and preach the gospel. Don't let the fact that that there's going to be a defector rattle you and shake you such that you forget why I called you in the first place. I think that's what he's getting at. See, sometimes Jesus, he... He addresses treachery in some of the most unique ways. I want to introduce to you Don and Carol Richardson. You may know of them. Uh, Don wrote the book there called Peace Child. These are missionaries, Don and Carol. They went to the Sawi tribe in the jungles of Papua New Guinea. It was 60 years ago, exactly, 1962, They travel by canoe with uh, their seven-month-old baby, Stephen. You're a young couple. You got a seven-month-old baby. Let's go to the jungles of Papua New Guinea. Amazing. This this guy, Don, I have followed this guy. I just learned of him this week. He's out there, lots of YouTube videos. So when you go down the wormhole, type Don Richardson, and, and he's... He, he went to be with the Lord in 2019. If he was still alive, I would do everything I could to bring him here to tell this story. I'm, I'm not going to do it justice. But I am so impressed with these guys. So where do they go? Papua New Guinea, the Sawi tribe. Who are they? They're these notorious, violent, head-hunting cannibals. All right? What that means is they're constantly feuding with the surrounding tribes. And once they capture their enemy... They cut off their head, and then they cook and eat their body. That's this group. Very dangerous area. But Don and Carol were protected there. They were safe from all harm because they brought three things with them that were extremely important. One, Don brought steel tools. I mean, these tribes, they're like... They got a stone, you know, they're trying to cut with stones and things, very primitive. He comes with saws and they're like, wow, we can be way more productive. So they brought steel tools, brought fishing line. Wow, fishing's a whole lot easier with this fishing line. And Carol, the last thing, she's a registered nurse. She brought medicine to combat the malaria that existed in these jungles. And now to minister effectively, to be a missionary, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. He had to learn the Sawi language. No textbook. He just had to hang out with these guys and learn their language so that he could communicate the truth of the gospel to them. Once he had enough, he sat down with them and he began to walk them through the New Testament. And he got to right about where we're at tonight. And he starts to talk about Judas as the betrayer. And he notices they lean in. They're very much interested in what he has to say. Hmm. He's like, ooh, I got their attention. This is good. 
But then as he talks about Judas betraying Jesus with a kiss, they start smiling and laughing, even cheering. And Don's like, wow, my, my sawi needs work, all right, because I'm not communicating properly. They're not understanding what's going on. Well, the reality is they understood him perfectly. You know why? The Sawi tribe held treachery as their highest value. It was a virtue. They, they saw Judas as the hero. Je Jesus was this dupe to be laughed at. They, they thought Judas was the good guy. And when, and when Don told him he betrayed Christ with a kiss, they're like, he did that. He is a master of treachery. And he was the hero for them. Don says to Carol, he goes, I think we have our work cut out for us. <laughs> so these tribes are going to war and they continue to fight. And Don says to Carol, he says, you know, this is a great quote. He says, has God brought us to the other side of the globe to serve him in the midst of a culture that is totally lacking in any means of conflict resolution? You can see why he would say that but he was wrong. They had a means. They did. There was an ancient custom called the peace child. The peace child. What, what it is, is there would be a man in one of the camps. When the fighting got to be too much, some father would offer up his only child as a sacrifice. Not to kill him, but he would take that child and he would go to his adversary tribe and to their chief, he would place that child in their hands. And he would give the child to, this, to, this, to the feuding tribe, the one that they're doing battle with. And both tribes understood that's a peace offering. And as long as that child lived, there would be no violence. It was all peace, all love. Well, I think you can make the connection here. What an analogy of the ultimate peace child, Jesus Christ, who will never die. This connection afforded Don the opportunity to communicate the truth of the gospel. And he did it in a way what he called a pre-existing redemptive analogy. God supplied this. This is God's doing, and he revealed it to Don Many of these people get saved, they get baptized, and then they return 50 years later and they see this, this is a, which was once a violent community, is thriving. And it's peace reigning amongst the tribes. Jesus addressing treachery in a most unique way. I'd recommend the book to you, uh, Peace, Child, uh, it's about 250 pages. I didn't read it, but there's a video on YouTube that you can see it, and it's actual footage of them uh, going to these, these uh, tribes in the jungle. And it's, again, Don Richardson, check them out. Fascinating story. Let's keep going. Verse 21 and 22 in John 13. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Jesus is troubled in his spirit. I like how John, he, he gives us both. He presents Jesus as being fully in control of the events of what's going on. He knows what's happening. He anticipates it. He's addressing it. 
But John doesn't want us to reach the faulty conclusion that Jesus is unmoved by these events. You see the humanity of Christ here. We see an interplay between the divinity and the humanity of Christ. And he says very plainly, one of you will betray me. Now I want you to notice how none of the disciples be like, yeah, Judas. We all, we all, we know what he's about, you know. He, he's the shadiest of us, of us all. It's got to be Judas. They don't know. In the other gospels, they all ask, is it I, Lord? Well, what does that tell us? That tells us hypocrisy isn't always easily identifiable. A good hypocrite is good at being a good hypocrite. It's not that obvious. It's not like a kid's TV show where the villain's got the black hat and he's rubbing his hands together and with this evil, maniacal laugh. <sighs> no, it's more subtle than that. And Judas was the master. He could have taught a master class on treachery. Verses 23 and 24. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, that's John's way of referring to himself, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Now, when we think about this Lord's Supper setting, Passover, Holy Week, we get our impression of, of what this might look like from a guy named Leonardo da Vinci. The Last Supper, okay? Now, Leonardo da Vinci was not there. He didn't say, all right, I need all of you on one side of the table, okay? That's not accurate. Beautiful painting, I guess. I mean, I don't know. I'm not into paintings, but it's famous, right? Priceless, if you got one, you're in good shape. There's your retirement plan. But that's really not what's going on. A better depiction is this image right here, a U-shaped table where the text tells us John is next to Jesus. And many, many believe Judas is there on the left. John is on the right. But we know Peter is not right next to Jesus. And I, I just have to confess to you, as a Roman Catholic for 30 years, I found it a little bit amusing that Peter had to go through John as an intercessor to get to Jesus. That's all I'm going to say. I chuckled in my spirit. Verse 25. So that disciple, that's John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And with that comes point number four. Jesus announces the treachery. Verse 27, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him, entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. There's a literal meaning there and figurative. So Judas takes the morsel 
and Satan enters into him. This is very important here. Judas cannot say, the devil made me do it. He cannot employ some Flip Wilson theology here. The devil made me do it. And I acknowledge I'm way too young to, to cite Flip Wilson. All right. Nevertheless, there you go. That was his line. He was a comedian from back in the day. Yes, Satan entered him, and Jesus is going to go on to say that Judas is a son of perdition. But that by no means gets Judas off the hook. He's still responsible. He did what he wanted to do. So it's Judas, you, and me. We are all responsible for our actions. It was Judas in his own sinful greed and his choice that he wanted to make. Sure, God did providentially calculate that into his own divine purposes. But the devil card gets played far too often. Far too often. There's two errors when it comes to Satan and demons. Over here is they don't exist. Error. Over here is there's a demon under every bush. It's also an error. It's usually right somewhere in the middle, right? But we need to start taking responsibility for our actions that stem from our own sinful desires that cause us to sin against God and others. See, we may slap someone simply because we have no love for them. We have no respect for them. We're lacking self-control. We're being controlled by the sinful flesh and we're not walking in the spirit. That is entirely possible and that must be confronted before we quickly throw out the Satan card. Lack of love, peace, patience, kindness, and self-control along with a failure to do what Jesus said, which is to turn the other cheek. That all must be factored in. It's very convenient to say Satan made me do it. We need to examine ourselves and our own mess. Again, with the understanding that the demonic realm is real. It is. Don't, don't mishear me on that. John Piper, I think he nails it. He'll say it better than I can. He said, did you know that in the warfare of Romans, very relevant, Living Water Community Church, we're in the midst of Romans, taking a break right now, but we're going to get back into it very shortly. He says, in the warfare of Romans, Satan doesn't show up until chapter 16. The only foothold Satan has in your life is your flesh and your sin. Nobody goes to hell because of Satan. The only reason we go to hell is sin, which is much more important than fighting Satan, is fighting sin. Piper goes on, my biggest enemy is not Satan. My biggest enemy is John Piper. He's the only reason I will go to hell, not Satan. And he goes on to talk about violence, not violence against other people, violence against our own selves. That's, that's the, the issue here. If we are violent against our own sinful tendencies, we're less likely to be violent towards others. That's the real fight. Slapping our flesh and the lusts that come from within that wage war against our souls. 
My last point, uh, point number five, Jesus atones for treachery. Judas, he lacked godly sorrow. He had a worldly sorrow, and the Bible tells us that leads to death. The atonement was not applied to Judas. He never sought it. So if we look at the treachery of Judas, we might be inclined to say, yeah, you know, that dude, I'd never do anything like that. And we have a tendency to approach this from a very self-righteous standpoint. But if we look at the cross of Christ here tonight and we fail to see our role in it, we've totally missed the point. We ought not speak like the Pharisee. Remember in the temple, the Pharisee offers up a prayer. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, swindlers, or like this tax collector over here, he can't even lift up his head. Or like Judas. That ought not be our predisposition. That we look down upon other people and say, well, I'm not like them. I'm not like Judas. I'm not like the women who robbed an elderly woman in church. I'm not like the guy who did the same. I'm not like the Sawi tribe who held treachery as a virtue. So the question remains, what about you? What about me? What about us? What about us? I would say there's treachery in all of us. Every single one of us. Remember the definition. What was the definition? Treachery is a betrayal of trust. Have you ever done that? I have. I certainly have. Remember, every disciple said, is it I, Lord? They all knew they had the capacity within themselves to be the traitor. Just look at the Ten Commandments. When you and I lie, what are we doing? We're indicating to people, you can't trust what comes out of this mouth. We're perpetrating a fraud. That's treachery. Ever steal anything? I used to go shoplifting before I knew the Lord. I would, I would walk in the store, hands in my pockets, whistling. Sir, can I help you? No, no, I'm, I'm just browsing. Moments later, taking something, sticking it into my jacket. It's treachery. I just betrayed her trust, perpetrating to be a customer when I'm a thief. What about adultery? Do we need to ask the question? That is a betrayal of trust. Of course it is. But you say, well, I've never done that. Well, what did Jesus say? You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, Anyone who looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Treachery. We could go on. Gossip, slander, talking behind people's back is treachery. None of us, myself included, can stand here and say we're innocent of any and all treachery. We can't. And so our posture shouldn't be like the self-righteous Pharisee. We should be the tax collector over here, head bowed, can't even look up. And what did he do? He beat his chest. He said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That ought to be our posture. That, that's the person who's ready to receive the mercy from the cross of Christ. So whatever your sin is, whatever you've done, Whatever your brand of treachery, it's, 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 you're not too far gone. 
The, the arm of salvation of God is plenty long to reach down into that pit, into that hole that we have dug for ourselves, and he can rescue us out of it. Jesus came for people just like them and just like us. Our treachery is what put Jesus on the cross. And as hard as that is to look at, that's not my first choice. I picked an image that would have been very difficult to look at. That one, we got a little bit of distance. We don't, we don't like to see this. I, I've, I've exposed myself to a lot of pictures, a lot of study of what happened on this Good Friday. I sit there and I weep. I weep. The Passion of the Christ, when's the last time you saw that? Might be good to pop that in every now and then. And I think about my own sin. My own sin put him there. I don't think about anybody else's sin. I'm not thinking about Judas. I'm not thinking about you. I'm thinking about me. I did that. I did that. And we, we, we like to medicate right away, don't we? We don't want to stare at images that we don't want to see, right? If we're hot, we turn on the AC. If we're cold, turn on the heat. Hungry, I need something to eat. Thirsty, I got to get something to drink, right? We, we immediately medicate ourselves. And sometimes I think there's value in sitting in the fact that we know we're forgiven. Don't misunderstand me, but to look at what our sin did to the sunless, sinless son of God. I think there's great value in that. That might just help you in your fight against sin to keep images like that and some of the more gruesome ones in your mind. Let me close with this. There's an artist who, who wrote a song. It was simply called The Cross. Let me share some of it with you. Willingly, he's under the curse to be treated as if the sun was the worst scum of the earth. The scene is the craziest. Jesus being treated as if he's the shadiest atheist. The one who's sinless and just, punished as if he was promiscuous and mischievous with vicious lust. The source of all godly pleasure, tormented as if he was a foul investor or child molester. How could he be bruised like he was a goody two-shoes who doesn't think she needs the good news? He's perfect in love and wisdom, but he's suffering as if he constructed the corrupt justice system. We should mourn at the backdrop. Jesus torn like he's on the corner with crack rock with porn on his laptop. His gifts are infinite, but he's hit with licks for religious hypocrites. He's the light, but being treated like he's the seedy type who likes to beat his wife. He's treated like a rapist, treated like a slanderer, treated like a racist or maybe a philanderer. Jesus being penalized like he had sin inside, filled with inner pride while committing genocide. I could write for a billion years and still can't name all of the sins placed on the lamb slain. And that includes whatever you have done. And me too. The command is to repent and believe. If you don't know what it means to repent, you don't know what it means to believe, I would love to talk to you after the service. I'll stay here as long as necessary. All of our pastors are here. We would love to talk to you about this. My family's here, but we got two vehicles, okay? I'll stay. You can ask questions. I, nothing is more important. Whatever it is you got to do to go home or get done this weekend, nothing's more important 
than this, right here. But for those of you to whom the cross has already been applied, let us not lose sight of, of the great price that was paid, the tremendous price that was paid for our own treachery. Therefore, we ought to live accordingly. We live accordingly, giving glory to God in all that we do. Yes, we look to the cross, but we live in light of the resurrection. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, at just the right time when we were still powerless, your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, died for the ungodly. That's me. That's those gathered here. That's those watching via video. That's us. Let us never think too highly of ourselves, but look to the example Jesus set for us. The creator of all things, stooping down to serve the very one who in just a few short hours would betray him with a kiss. Not only that, this is where we remember Jesus, the sinless one, taking upon himself the full wrath of our sin. And in exchange, we receive his righteousness. Lord, I simply cannot wrap my brain around that. It confounds me. I don't have a category to comprehend it. I take it on faith. We look at your kindness to the treacherous ones in John 13, and we recognize our own sin and treachery. So I would simply like to say here with my friends, thank you, Lord, for the cross. Amen. Well, today...